Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. This podcast is intended to be an in-depth exploration of the intersections between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And my hope is that the talks and conversations in this podcast will help support your practice and or your teaching of yin yoga and meditation. In this episode, I continue a conversation with meditation teacher Oren J. Sofer, and we talk about his new book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. This, I think, is really an immensely important topic right now, particularly at this moment we're all living through, a moment marked perhaps by ever-deepening divides of political and ideological tribalism. Communicating effectively in a way that leads to collaborative win-win solutions is no easy task. And yet, the optimistic point that Oren makes is that this capacity to communicate more effectively can actually be trained. And his book, Say What You Mean, is the perfect manual for how to undertake that training. Now, this particular episode is a bit longer than my usual 15 to 25 minute episodes. But there are so many important insights shared by Orrin about nonviolent communication that I wanted the topic to not be chopped by time constraints. In reviewing this episode for publication, I've re-listened to several sections of the interview, and each time I feel a renewed inspiration and commitment to implementing the principles that Orrin discusses here. As I mentioned at the end, I hope you'll join me this year in bringing strategies for nonviolent communication into your practice and life. And you can do that, or you can add these elements into your own practice by training with Oren's outstanding book, Say What You Mean. I leave a link for Oren's book in the show notes, as well as a link to Oren's website, where you'll find lots of wonderful free resources about meditation and mindful communication. But consider what author and neuroscientist Rick Hansen had to say about Oren's book. He said, quote, If I had just one book to recommend about interpersonal communication, it would be this one, end quote. So I hope you enjoy installment two of my conversation with Oren J. But before jumping into the conversation, I just want to take a moment and thank again the supporters of the podcast who responded to my appeal for help in sharing the podcast with friends or with their social media networks. Your support in sharing this podcast really means a tremendous amount, and I want to wholeheartedly thank you once again. Thank you so much. Okay, and now, once again, I bring you Oren J. Sofer. Oren, in the first part of our conversation, uh, we talked about some of the broad themes of your new book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. And those broad themes include embodied presence, the importance of embodied presence for conversation or effective communication, um, the importance of a cl clear intention around what's trying to be communicated, and mm -hmm. uh, staying focused on and attentive to the, uh, the what really matters in the conversation itself, which That's right. people can, yeah. can get lost in pretty easily. 
And in that conversation, you uh, we spent a lot of time speaking about um, the embodied presence piece as a as a vital precondition for um, effective communication. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I'd like to try to dial in on some of the specific elements of nonviolent communication and how they uh, kind of flesh out uh, what some you might say gets missed in just a pure mindfulness approach to communication. And as a way to do that, I wanted to give an example of some advice mm-hmm. that I recently came across about how to handle charged, conflictual conversation for people coming into the holidays. This podcast will probably be airing sometime after the holidays, but I think the themes that will come up in this are uh, very germane to the particular historical moment where many of us find ourselves in. So I'd like to pick your brain and and see what you have to say about this. So a couple days ago, I got uh, an email from Robert Wright, who has been putting out a mindfulness resistance newsletter, which um, for those that don't know, Robert Wright is a uh, kind of a public intellectual who's written a number of books, one on evolutionary psychology. Uh, His recent book is on Buddhism, why Buddhism is true. Um, But he's very concerned about the growing um, schism in our culture due to tribalistic instincts. And he sees mindfulness as one of several potential ways to try to overcome or bridge those sort of baked-in tendencies towards tribalism. Um, And in this particular newsletter, he was trying to give some advice for how people might uh, approach communication with family members around the holidays to avoid topics that might spark tribalistic instincts. (laughs) So I just want to share a bit of this newsletter and then um, sort of use it as a case study for uh, for some of your thoughts around uh, good communication. Sure. Sounds okay. So yeah, yeah. Uh, this has to do with the T word, Trump. Um, apparently Robert has three of his four siblings voted for Donald Trump. And at a recent family reunion, he was a bit anxious about um, how interactions with them might go. And he says, here is the approach I took to handling intra-family tribal tensions. Avoid at all costs uttering the word Trump. And he says, everyone else followed the same rule, presumably because they knew that if the subject of Trump came up, the result would make the barroom shootout scene in Inglorious Bastards look like the opening scene of The Sound of Music. Amidst this moratorium on political discussion, a good time was had by all. So he says, I was lucky. Uh, my Trump-supporting relatives had implicitly signed on to a non-aggression pact. Not everyone is blessed, however, with Trump-supporting relatives who are as wise as mine. So what is my counsel for those of you who are afflicted with Trump-supporting relatives, unlike mine, who have the bad manners of talking about Trump in mixed company? So, And then he says, at the risk of sounding like a meditation teacher... When your relatives say something about Trump, pay attention to the feelings that arise. This may, if nothing else, distract you for long enough so that you don't say anything in reply, which, if your temperament is like my temperament, is a good thing in itself. But that's not really the ideal outcome. When the mindful awareness of feelings really works, it gives you a kind of critical distance from the feelings. If you have enough removed from this, this non-attachment to your feelings, then the things you say in reply to the person who aroused the feelings won't be governed by the feelings. 
So for example, you feel anger, you observe the anger, and as a result of the observation, angry thoughts don't dictate your next utterance. Now, he then goes on to confess that it's easy for me to say, because most of his Trump-supporting relatives uh, didn't mention bringing up this topic, um, but on a phone call just before the night of the election with his brother, uh, he was so emotionally reactive that he never got to around even trying this this <laughs> particular technique, which sort of begs the, qu- the thing. The thing that I wanted to mention here is that it, you know, this stuff can sound theoretically like really clear and easy to implement, but it's not so easy in the heat of the moment to pause, as you were speaking of before, um, and and take stock of the feelings that are about to drive your one's response to something. Let me pause there and just say, what, what, what is your feeling around that, that advice? Do you think it's good or do you have other things that you think would be more effective for handling these types of conflicts? You know, I think that um, Robert's pointing to a couple of things there that I would agree with um, in theory, uh, which is one, um, yeah, super important to be mindful and aware of the reactions and emotions that arise in us. If we're not practicing some kind of awareness inside of how we're relating to what's happening, um, we have very little chance of engaging wisely because we're going to be reacting and running on automatic. Uh, so that's essential for having more choice and being able to self-regulate the reactions that come up. Um, and, you know, on one level, I think that um, so much of communication is context-sensitive, So, and this is one of the things that's um, both freeing and also tricky about teaching communication is that there are no hard and fast rules. Uh, And one of the ways that I talk about um, having more meaningful conversations is one has to look at the conditions. What are the conditions that lead to meaningful conversations? Uh, You know, we have uh, time, there's a sense of spaciousness. where there's mutual interest, mutual respect. Um, there's been some kind of agreement to be having the conversation. We're both on board about what we're talking about. So, you know, I, I would want to kind of fill out what Robert's saying because I think that it could be misinterpreted, which is a little bit, I, I think, where you were coming from and raising this is, you know, uh, just avoiding a topic is uh, at all costs in all situations is not necessarily healthy. That's going to lead to suppression. Um, you know, it's a form of conflict avoidance, as you as you pointed out in our, our email exchange, uh, which is one of those four habitual conditioned responses to difference in conflict uh, that many of us learn growing up. Conflict avoidance, uh, competitive confrontation, so just pushing and, and attacking and fighting, passivity, just giving up our, our needs completely, and passive aggression, which is kind of this sort of combination of pretending everything's okay, but actually expressing dissatisfaction or hostility. So, you know, avoiding talking about charged political or religious issues at family gatherings, if it's a conscious choice, it can actually be skillful because the question is, 
why are we getting together? And is this the right time and place to have the conversation? And most of the time, we're not getting together to have a political debate, you know, or, uh, you know, depending on your family, uh, we're getting together to enjoy one another's company, um, to celebrate something, to rejoice, um, to catch up on each other's lives personally. So, you know, I think that one of the things that I say, I've written a few blog posts in the last month about all of this because of the holidays coming up, you know, both a, a post on some skills for difficult conversations, um, some tips on how to survive the holidays and um, navigate those tense moments with more ease. And then the last post I just published uh, was how to enjoy your time with relatives, which I think is really important, how to actually notice and appreciate the good qualities that are present. So, um, so I would, I would agree generally to say that, yeah, you know, if, if it's not, if your sense is this isn't going to be helpful, you know, we're not going to solve the climate crisis. I'm not going to change your mind about your political views, um, over, you know, the holiday meal, uh, then maybe it is better to skillfully redirect the conversation when something volatile comes up. It doesn't mean we're avoiding it. It means we're choosing to focus on something else. And we can actually say that quite directly, you know, like, you know, those issues are, so someone brings something up, right, about a political issue that's charged. We can, we can acknowledge it. You know, that's really important to me, that this, that issue, as you know, I have different views than you. And you know, tonight I really just want to focus on enjoying each other's company. You know, if, if you really want to talk about that, let's find another time when you and I can sit down and really, really explore our views more. You know, and so we're, we're not avoiding the topic. We're acknowledging this is important, but we're also saying it's not the time and place. Okay, so it sounds like a bit of a deflection of some sort of skillful deflection. Uh, yeah, you could say that, you know, it's, it's, again, I think it's making a choice. And this is, this is one of the gifts and the benefits of having training in communication is that, um, we have more agency, we feel more empowered about what we talk about and when, and if somebody brings something up, that's important to us, even if it's not a, you know, the holiday meal, it's like we're at work, somebody brings up, uh, something that happened on a project that needs to be, you know, reevaluated and, we're stressed out about something else or we're having a bad day. And we recognize, look, if I talk inside, we recognize, oh my God, if I talk about this now, I'm totally going to get um, pissy and this is not going to go well. We might say to the other person, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that you bring that up. I, I agree. I, I think we do need to sort that out. Today's not the best day for me. I've got a lot of other stuff going on. Can we find another time to talk about this maybe tomorrow? It's not deflecting. It's just it's just being in touch uh, with our own our own needs and feeling empowered to speak up for them. And I can see that you know, in a, in the situation of a a party or a family dinner gathering, that that this this these wouldn't be conducive times to really unpack these kinds of conversations. But let's say you are somebody is in a more uh, intimate contained setting um and right. these topics do come up and one of the things i appreciate in the chapters in your book around nonviolent communication was this idea of identifying needs right that are that are being communicated and that's something that i never really think thought of it usually when there's conflict i sort of take the person's view that's being expressed at face value and i either agree with it or disagree with it 
And like you went through, I either avoid talking about it or I then get competitively, con aggressively confrontational or then kind of like throw up my hands and run away and become very passive. <laughs> but but right, right. Um, I've never been able to, I never really thought about exploring like what is this person's, what need exists prior behind this person's view or the or what, what they're saying. Right. And I wanted to kind of hear what you had to say around in those tense moments, how do you, how do you, or how do you recommend reflecting on the needs and, and actually listening into what the person might be um, desiring? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great, great point. Um, so uh, a few things. Um, one, I want to I want to just kind of build on this topic we're exploring. Of yeah, okay, well, when it is time to talk about it, you know, how do we how do we do that? And uh, just to go back momentarily to the holiday conversation, right? Or or, or the inappropriate moment, even if it's not a holiday meal, right? Um, sometimes uh, what's important is not to have the conversation, but to set a limit. Or expressive view, you know. So, just I want to I want to just add on to what I was saying before addressing your question, which is, you know, we might choose to not to have the conversation right now, but we can still give voice to a deep value that we have. So, let's say somebody is expressing something that we might label as racist or homophobic. Uh, you know, we so we don't want to get into the the political views and the reasons at this particular time, but it also doesn't just feel okay to say, let's not talk about that right now, right? We feel like, no, I actually need to say something here. Yeah, I mean, the phrase that I heard recently is like, if there's a boot to your neck <laughs> or a boot standing on your neck, like just sort of saying, let's not talk about it now, just feels a little disingenuous given the severity of, of what is being said. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if uh, sometimes it might be, you know, the boot's not on your neck, but it's on the neck of someone you care about or love or a friend. Right. It's like, well, I have white skin and I'm heterosexual. So that comment doesn't affect me directly, but it's still like not OK for me. Right. So the boots on, you know, the neck of other people in my community. Totally, uh, totally. So that so so then, you know, to be able to again and I address this in one of both in the book and in one of my recent blog posts on my website of saying, you know, um, you can set a limit without. Um, denigrating the other person without blaming them or being like, that's racist. You know, that's just going to blow up. Just be able to say, you know, when I hear you say that, I, I feel really uncomfortable and a little bit uh, uh, angry and uh, maybe even scared because uh, I, statements like that can lead to real violence against people who are different than you and I. Uh, or, you know, I want everyone to be treated uh, equally with respect, regardless of the color of their skin or who they choose to love. You know, so we can we can we can set a limit and express our value uh, in opposition to what someone else is saying, without making them bad or wrong. Which is where so much of the aggression and the and the fighting and the hostility comes from. It's just saying, you know, here's why I have a problem with that, and this is pointing to my needs. This is pointing to the deep value that I have, right, for safety, for peace, for equity, for justice, for respect for all people, and so forth. So, in terms of so coming to your next question around, okay, well, you're, you are having the conversation and, you know, someone is, is advocating, um, 
you know, a uh, different healthcare system than, the, than, you know, the healthcare system that you think would be most uh, conducive to uh, people having the care that they need in our society, you know, or different tax plan or, you know, different foreign policy, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So instead of, as you're saying, instead of just focusing on the views, which is where we get locked into arguments, what we want to try to do is to get interested and curious in in why why does this person hold this view what what is it that they are what is the end result or the goal that they are after at a level that we can identify with and that's the key because we can say oh well they just want you know let's say it's uh, tax reform you know it's like oh well, they just want more money for you know people like themselves well that's not really a need because uh, a def the definition of a need from the perspective of nonviolent communication from the perspective of humanistic psychology and many other social sciences is that needs are shared universal fundamental human longings so the the premise is that human beings are logical on on some level that we are motivated to think to speak and to act by uh things that are important to us you know that anything we do is an attempt to try to satisfy some deeper need and that at that level, these these deeper values or needs, at that level, we have more in common than uh, than we have different between us. So, this is a training, as you know from reading the book. This is a training in our attention. Where are we placing our attention? Are we focusing solely on the words and the views and the ideas that are being expressed and then therefore getting reactive, arguing, disagreeing? Or are we able to listen at another level? Are we able to inquire with a genuine uh, with a genuine curiosity, with a genuine uh, penetrating interest to say, well, what's What's at the root of this? What is this person really valuing or longing for? And then we can actually listen and say, oh, it sounds like you're really confident that that this particular you know tax approach would stimulate the economy and ultimately provide more jobs and more livelihood for people who are living below the poverty line. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely, right? That's 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 the whole theory behind conservatism or something, you know. So the, uh, we start to get to the the rationale or the logic behind it. Now, once we've identified the the aim of their view, the deeper need behind that strategy, now we can start to have a more detailed conversation because we can say, well, listen, you know, I actually I actually have the same desire. I want that same thing. But my understanding is that this other way of going about it would be better, and here's why. Here's the information I have about, you know, the last three times our government tried this and the data that shows the results. You know, so therefore, I, I, I'm not convinced that that's going to be helpful. I'd like to understand why you think it would be. Can you tell me more about about that, right? So now we're actually having a meaningful conversation, we're not just arguing on the level of I'm right and you're wrong, but we, we're establishing some shared criteria for what is the goal? What is the aim here? And this goes for not just political conversations. This goes for anything, whether it's a conversation at work about a project, whether it's an intimate relationship and we're trying to sort out uh, some some 
dynamic or or issue uh, that keeps coming up? You know, what is it that we're ultimately after? And then how do we work together to address all of the needs that are on the table between the two of us? And uh, listening to you, you know, for, on one level, I can hear, I can imagine that as soon as you start laying out like, well, here's what happened in the last three administrations when we did this and, and try to present data. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, that, that certain people can be presented with data till the cows come home and they just will not change their mind. But um, maybe that aside, like if in this question may be a little too simplistic, but are there what kind of what kinds of recommendations might you have for somebody to help them shift in a conversation from being sort of transfixed by the views coming at them or the statements coming at them and to start to perceive or hear the, the needs behind that's behind the, the views. That... Right. That's the key shift there. Yeah. Um, it takes training, Josh, you know, this is, this is why communication practice is not like a one-off. And I, you know, I say this at the beginning of the book, it's like, uh, there's a lot of wonderful information in here, but if you don't practice it, it's not going to do you much good. We actually need to um, take the time to work with the tools. And so how do we make the shift? Well, one aspect is recognizing the limits and um, how to say it, like uh, the, yeah, the limits of our habitual ways of relating and really seeing like, well, okay, I've been, I've been, I've been focusing on, you know, communicating in this way for so long. Uh, how's it going? You know, when I get into a heated moment or a difficult conversation, am I satisfied with the results? So really looking at the pain points and the sense of like, oh, like, you know, I uh, I could use some more tools here. That's that's a motivation to recognize that when we are engaging habitually or automatically, usually the results are not not so pleasing or, or helpful. Um, the, then, as far as actually being able to do this, there are a few steps. So the first step is is being mindful, learning how to be more aware when engaging with another human being. And that's actually harder than we'd think because there's so much going on and so much energy gets stimulated when we're around other people that we very quickly lose our sense of presence and groundedness. So this is why the whole first part of the book really focuses on techniques to remain grounded and aware while speaking, excuse me, while speaking and listening with other people. Because if we're not aware, we don't have any choice. So in order to be able to shift our habit and and make this step of listening for the needs instead of reacting to the views and the ideas and the strategies, first we need to be present because that's what's going to give us the choice. That's what's going to allow us to remember, oh, wait, I have a tool here. I have a skill here. That's number one. And then number two is learning to cultivate a genuine sense of interest. These tools only work when we're uh, when we're when we're genuine. They don't work when we're just trying to apply some technique in order to get our way. That's called manipulation. And this is one of the things that's hardest for people to understand, not understand, hardest for people to um, really, really take in and embody and trust because we want so much to control 
the outcome. We want so much for things to go our way, for, for you know, everything to work out. And the reality is that it's not up to us. It's, it's, we can only do the best we can do. And so, you know, the tools are not there to control what happens. They're there to increase the chances of having a meaningful conversation and understanding one another because we're creating the conditions for that to happen. But there are other conditions beyond our control. So one of those key conditions is this, is this factor of genuine interest. How, you know, can we genuinely be curious? And this is where the perspective, the view of human needs is so essential. And this is very consistent with Buddhist practice, which is that the first, the leader is right view. If our if our um, if our perspective if our view is off everything else that follows is going to be off, so we're present and then we remember we remember the the premise okay everything we do we do to meet a need human beings are motivated by basic underlying shared needs okay what does this person need what matters here what's important to them we ask those mm-hmm. questions either silently internally or externally, you know, really say, I really want to understand where you're coming from. What, what's important to you about that? You know, what, what are you after there? What, how do you think that's going to help society or people? So those are some of the ways that we can start to remember and actually practice uh, this shift in our attention. And I think that, I mean, that shift from a and being being in the mode in the conversation or communication where you're trying to get it right or trying to convince the other person to taking interest one of the things about that shift at least for me it always feels like i'm i'm surrendering something and i'm like i'm losing out as soon as i I shift into that like i'm i'm i I feel like um i have to resign myself to to not getting my view across yeah right like there's a way that like to to start to be genuinely interested in, in where this other person's coming from and it's sort of a cognitive emp- yeah. move, move of empathy yeah yeah I, I i feel like i um i have to shelf my own agenda yeah so uh really important um question that you're asking here and uh this is one of the points that i wanted to make earlier so thank you for the unintentional uh setup <laughs> great uh a segue here so um, our conditioning is uh, that we live, uh, our conditioning and the reality in many situations is that we live in a, in a world of separation uh, where it, there's an either or, right? Either you get what you want or I get what I want. Either you're right and I'm wrong or vice versa. Uh, and what these, to- these tools, and, and that's where that fear comes from. That fear comes from the view and the re- the repeated experiences of the past that reinforce the view, which says, if there's a conflict, there's going to be a winner and a loser. Someone's going to be right. Someone's going to be wrong. Someone's going to get what they want. Someone's not going to get what they want. And therefore, I know which side I want to be on. And if the, if those are the rules of the game, any any amount that I give any right to the other person, any amount of understanding I express is just going to be used against me, and I'm going to lose. So how do we deal with that resistance? How do we deal with that fear? The the key here is that we're shifting our view from a world of separation and either or to a world of connection and interdependence where something different is possible. And this is actually more in line with the reality, which is that we are actually connected. Mm -hmm. 
We are not as separate as we think. So in a, in a, in a, in a world of separation, either your needs matter or my needs matter or your views and approach matters or mine does. In a world of interdependence, we hold both together. And this is the shift that we make over and over again is to recognize, you know, I care about you and I care about what you think or I care about, you know, the perspective that you have. There might be something that you're seeing or valuing that I could learn from and vice versa. So what we're what we're trying to do here is to hold both together, whether we're having a political conversation, a professional conversation, or a personal intimate conversation. We're trying to see, and that that's that's a place of dynamic tension, holding both of our values and needs together. Now, the fear that comes up of I'm giving I'm giving up my ground. That is a sign that's pointing to the fact that we need to develop more strength and confidence in expressing and staying true to our own, um, our own, our own needs, what uh, our own, you know, particular perspective. So just because I show some understanding to the other person, I'm temporarily saying, I'm just going to put my, um, my agenda or, you know, my desires, what I have to say, I'm going to temporarily suspend that in order to, in order to try to understand the other person, because I recognize it's in my best interest for this person to feel understood. It's actually in both of our best interest. If they feel heard and understood, they're going to have more space to listen to me. They're going to be more willing, most likely to hear my side of things. So I'm temporarily saying, well, look, let me see if I can understand you, not as a technique of manipulation, genuinely. If I can understand you, then I come back to my side. Then I come back and say, um, uh, well, here's how I see things. I'd like to share with you a little bit of my perspective. Can you listen to that? So that's the, uh, that's the other side that we, that we work towards. As I'm listening to you, I'm reminded of a, a series of um live debates slash conversations I saw with Sam Harris and a few other people. Um, and at the beginning of them, the moderator would say, oh, before we get into each of your uh, differing positions, I want each of you to steel man the other. So rather than straw man the other, like sort of have a char- characterization of them that's incorrect and then argue against that, they, the moderator would say, uh, articulate this your other your opponent's view right and, right and statement in a, in a way that they are satisfied that you got it exactly and then from there we'll move on and it's it's in a way it sounds like you're kind of uh, recommending or advocating a form of that it is a form of that it's very much a sense of taking the other person's perspective and making sure that we understand what they're saying not from our point of view from their point yeah. of view the the addition that i'm making is to go one level deeper and not just articulate their view on the surface level but to really check why yeah. what what's the what's the ultimate aim what's the logic behind it i want to add one more thing here josh that i think is really important um and this goes back to some of the questions you asked earlier about like um winning and you know um winning the argument or you know persuading the other person and the the point you made about you know people can be presented with all kinds of data 
And studies have shown that uh, so much of our views politically are emotionally based and that the, you know, the, the cognitive dissonance of the data is often not enough to change a view. Um, what, so this is one of the things I talk about in one of my, one of my recent posts on the um, communication with family over the holidays. On one level, what's more important than you know, the data that we share or, you know, the out, the outcome of the conversation, what's more important is how we show up, how we relate, how we behave and interact in the conversation for two, for two reasons. Number one, our own integrity, Right. If we, regardless of the outcome, if we are are being consistent with our own values, we're showing respect. We're being patient. We're making space to listen while still expressing our own um, uh, feelings and uh, and views and ideas authentically. Uh, there's no regret afterwards. We know that I have I have done my best to live my values and be in integrity. And when we make a mistake or slip up or get reactive, we take responsibility for it. We say, no, hold on. I just, you know, I know I just I just said something that was not my intention. Let me try that again. You know, so we're uh, creating the conditions for our own well-being and happiness by uh, maintaining our integrity with how we show up. That's number one. Number two, it's again, we're creating the conditions for change. There's something very powerful about being non-reactive. Again, not as a technique of control or superiority or manipulation, but as a genuine expression of deep respect for one another's humanity. There's something really powerful about that, that even, even if we don't convince the other person to change their mind, we might, we might, the, the, the way we show up can have an effect because they say, you know, I don't agree with them, but I really appreciated the way they engaged and I have more respect for their view. Mm-hmm. That's an outcome that can happen. And one of the stories I tell in the book is about the, uh, these two groups of women that met in Boston at a, a protest, um, about, um, uh, women's reproductive rights. This was back in the eighties. And so one group of women was from a pro-choice uh, faction and the other group of women was from a pro-life faction. And, you know, typical demonstrations, signs, police, people shouting and screaming. And one or two of the women, you know, from different sides of the of the line kind of like started talking at the demonstration and were joking about this is ridiculous. You know, we're, we're just yelling at each other. This isn't going to accomplish anything. So they decided to start meeting. And for a number of months, they met uh, regularly. A small group of women from each side got to know each other, talked about their views, and really listened, really practiced some of uh, these principles, and not necessarily nonviolent communication, but trying to understand what mattered to one another. Now, the end result was very interesting. None of the women changed their mind. No one's views were changed. But when the women in the pro-life camp got word through the network that somebody was planning to come to Boston to bomb an abortion clinic. They talked amongst themselves, and they sent a message out that said, you are not welcome in our community. Do not come. So the end result was that they didn't change their views, but they had enough respect 
they had enough connection with the humanity of the people on the other side that they were not willing to use violence to accomplish their aims. That's a success in my book. Yeah, huge, huge. Yeah, it prevented the degradation of civility, which... Um, that Exactly. Which is, what, which is why the outcome is less important than how, in terms of one conversation, less important than how we're relating and how we're showing up. Because it's how we're showing up that's going to build those connections of basic human decency mm-hmm. and, and going to reweave the fabric of human society, which is, which is tearing in so many ways right now when we can't even have these conversations. That's what we need is the ability to disagree in a respectful and kind way. Right. Not that we all have to agree with each other. That's not democracy. That's not reality. But can we disagree in a way that's constructive, respectful, kind? That's 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 the aim. Right. And that's different from just not bringing up topics, which I started out asking about, you know, and just avoiding things. It's it's, exactly. it's actually still engaging, but right, but not um, not having things break down. Um, well, look, I want to be mindful of your time and um, just say that uh, this your book has been a real eye-opener to me. And I, I think the more I spend time with it, the more I think it's it's filling in a vital need in the, the meditation community, um, hopefully people beyond just the meditation um, community will find it and um, and improve the quality of their communication. It's something that I intend personally to try to implement throughout next year. So one of my resolutions is to keep this book by the bed or by my coffee table. That's wonderful. Um, and I wish you the best of, best of luck with it. That's great, Josh. Thanks. You know, one one thing I want to just make a plug for for those who are listening and extend the invitation to you. This these tools do need to be practiced, and so one of the things that I'm providing through my website, two of the things I'm providing. One is a I'm teaching a, a three month online course live focused on the book to really give people the experience and the, and the practice, uh, to use the tools and integrate them in their, in their life. Uh, I had a question about that actually, Great, because I, I just, I saw the notice about that in your recent newsletter and the course, that course will be starting after this particular episode launches. Will, will that be, will that be coming around again? Um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't decided if I'll teach it again, uh, in, in 20, in after 2019, but, um, you know, I teach all over the country, so there's definitely other opportunities and depending on when the episode airs, you know, all of the sessions are recorded. So folks can join, uh, anytime during the first month of the program and watch, watch the previous episodes. The other thing though, is that anyone who gets the book who wants to practice, um, there's a link on my website to find a practice partner. You can find try to find someone in your own city. You can find someone remotely and go through the book together and learn the tools. Yeah, that's great. I'm hoping to use my wife as my practice partner on this. <laughs> that's a great way to do it. If, if you know, if you have an intimate partner who's willing, it's really wonderful to learn these things together because then you can you can uh, you can share them and use them when difficult stuff comes up. Yeah, great. It's really good stuff. Thank you so much for your time, and um, we'll include all that for information in the show notes for people. Great. Okay, I'll pause the conversation there. Oren and I got a little pinched on time during our interviews due to the demands of his busy teaching schedule. 
but we will be recording a third installment of our conversation. And in this final part of the interview, we'll focus on the importance of his training in somatic experiencing and how that training, particularly in the body, informs his approach to nonviolent communication. Next up on the podcast, however, I'm excited to be releasing the first episode of a conversation I had with Dr. Daniel Keown about his new book, The Unchartered Body. The Unchartered Body is a revolutionary new textbook on medicine integrating wisdom from Chinese and Western medicine, and I'm really excited to bring that conversation to you. In the meantime, however, if you'd like to train or study in yin yoga with me, please check out yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. Thanks so much for listening today, and I will see you in the next episode.